Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, we're going to look at parts of 33 and a little bit of 34 uh, this morning. So turn there in the scriptures. Man, that that last song, I'm telling you guys, um, first service, I got choked up, and so I just, I just prayed. I just prayed the generations of my family. You know what it's saying? You know, from your children and your children's children. And, and, and man, I, I'm telling you, uh, I was able to sing this service, but uh, it, it is a, a fueling thing to pray while other people are, are singing you to pray. Does that make sense? Like, like last service, I felt like everybody was singing to help me pray. And uh, that's a, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Hey, while you're turning to Exodus 33, uh, every year we, uh, we feed the county jail, both for Thanksgiving and Christmas, about 90 guy, 90 people uh, in the county jail or so. That's a kind of a rough estimate of how many we're going to feed each year. Um, we call it Operation Bless. There is a sign-up sheet right out those doors, I believe, right in that hallway there. And uh, this year, because our crowd, our attendance has been about half or a little less than half of what we normally are due to COVID, uh, those, those sheets are not very filled out, and Thanksgiving is this week. And uh, so if you would be willing to help us, if you're going to be here, some of the stuff, you could like get it and bring it today, even, or tomorrow. Uh, some of the stuff, obviously, is cooking sensitive, and so you would need to bring it either like Wednesday night or Thursday morning and stuff like that. Ed Evans is the guy that's in charge of that. Uh, if you know him, you can get a hold of him or the church office if you want help on how to get stuff where. Um, but that, that's called Operation Bless, and uh, we wanted to give you an opportunity, one more kind of push uh, to try to get that done. And so that's outside those doors. Um, Exodus 33. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Just follow me. We'll probably take a jump or so uh, here and there. Um, but, but we're going to start in verse 1, okay? Exodus 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Korb onward. Jump forward to verse 12. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you've also found, and, and have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every 
other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by and then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the, tab the first tablets which you broke but be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen through all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in, in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Father in heaven, show us your glory. Father, I pray that you would pull back the curtains of heaven and Reveal yourself, reveal your name, reveal your glory. Show us your glory in the word. God, show us your glory in your son, Jesus. Show us your glory in the moving of the Holy Spirit and the, the transformation of the gospel. Father, show us who you are. Show us your nature. God, make us satisfied in you. Father, teach us this morning. God, bring us to to a desire, an unquenchable desire for more of you. God, we must have your presence. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I ask you who is God, what would you say? So that's a big question, right? Uh, but, but what would be the first thing that would come to your mind? Like, like who is God? And, and, and what would be the, the primary characteristic? Like you would say, well, you know, primarily God is this. Like obviously we know God is glorious, which means he is maxed out, you know, to the top, abounding, overflowing in, you know, all kinds of beautiful things, power, love, justice, compassion, faithfulness, truth, wisdom, might, majesty, all, all the, and more and more and more, right? But, but what, what do you think of first? How should we primarily know God? Isn't it interesting that when God is revealing himself here to Moses, that, that, that he primarily reveals himself? If you'll notice 33, 19, 
the Lord, that's Yahweh. Remember, we looked at that in Exodus 3. I am who I am, God's self-existence. And then he says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. He, he primarily reveals himself here as one who, who by his own will, by his own decision, is abounding in grace and mercy. And then when he hides Moses in the rock in chapter 34 and reveals himself in verse 9, you know, he says again, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. He begins with those, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It would seem that God wants you to know. He wants you to know that he is full of, that his primary characteristics are this abounding in grace and mercy. It's interesting that Jesus, when Often when he revealed himself, uh, I think of uh, Matthew 11, 20, 29, come to me, all you who are, are uh, uh, weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light, uh, and I'll give rest for your, your souls. You know, he, he reveals himself as one who is gentle, one who is merciful. Now, now what is the, the context? Let, let's, let's step back for a second and get a run at this. So, so the context here in chapter 33, verse 1 is, is God is going to go ahead and bring them into the promised land, okay? So, so remember last week, chapter 32, uh, God goes up on the mountain, or I'm sorry, Moses goes up on the mountain, meets God, 40 days, 40 nights, he's receiving the law, the 10 commandments, he's coming down with the tablets, and what is Israel doing? Israel is saying, hey, you know, we don't know about this Moses guy, he's left, he's not coming down for 40 days, 40 nights, hey, let's go and make our own God, and they make a golden calf, right? And basically, God says to Moses, all right, I'm done. Uh, this is a stiff-necked people. I'm going to consume them. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, and I'm going to make a new nation of you, Moses, okay? And, and Moses intercedes. We're going to see that again today. He intercedes for Israel, and, and Israel is rescued from that. And now in chapter 33, verse 1, God says, okay, I'm going to bring you in the promised land. I'm going to send an angel. Now, that ought to be encouraging. Right? If, you, if you know your Old Testament, some of these angels, one of them would destroy an entire army in a night. I mean, these are fierce and powerful beings. And God says, I'm going to send an angel with you, and I'm going to bring you into this land just like I promised. It's a land full of milk and honey. It's a prosperous, flowing, beautiful, glorious land. I'm going to send you there. I'm going to fulfill my promise to you, but I'm not going to go. That's the kicker. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go with you, lest I consume you because you're idolatrous and you're stiff-necked. Now, this is absolutely unacceptable to Moses, okay? In, in, in verse 14, or 15, I'm sorry, verse 15, Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. Moses says, if you're not going to come, God, if we, if we don't get you, if we don't have your presence, if you yourself are not going to take us into the promised land, this land that, that flows with milk and honey, and remember, these guys have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God is giving them this dream land, this dream life, this life they've always, you know, thought was never even possible. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to bring you in that land just without me. I'm not going to go. Moses cries out, no. In verse four, it says, when the people heard this disastrous word, 
In other words, Moses is like, God, if we don't have you, then just don't bring us up. Leave us here in the desert. We don't want the promised land without you. Let's pause right there. I wonder today, okay, the promised land in some ways is kind of a glimpse or a picture, a foreshadowing of of heaven to some degree, okay? I wonder if today, if there was an option to have heaven without God, I wonder if somehow there were this option that you could have this new heavens and new earth, you could have this place of of, of beauty and and where all the the brokenness of this life would be fixed and and you could go there and spend an eternity there, but just God wouldn't be there. That would be the only difference. God wouldn't be there. Would you be okay with that? Do you know people that would be fine with that version? If there were some kind of track B, you know, where you could live forever in this paradise but God's presence wouldn't be there. You you know what's scary to me? I think not only would a lot of people be okay with that, I think some people, they probably wouldn't admit it, I think some people would prefer it. And that's tragic. If you would be fine with that, then you have missed everything. You've missed the glory of God. You've missed the gospel. You've missed the treasure. You see, Moses was not for a moment okay with that. God's like, I'll, I'll send you in the promised land. I'll get one of my angels. Man, they're, they're, they defeat anybody you face. I'll send them with you. You can get in the promised land, but I'm not going with you because if I go with you, I'll consume you because you're a stiff-necked, sinful, rebellious people. And Moses is like, no, no. God, if you're not there, then we don't want to go. Leave us here with you in the desert. The promised land is empty. It's futile to Moses without God. I mean, grab this, guys. Moses wants God. He values God. He treasures God above all else. And actually, Moses is right on track here, okay? Because here, listen to me. If we take our illustration, there is no heaven without God. God is heaven. God is life. God is glory. The glory of heaven is not gold bricks or pearl gates. The glory of heaven is God. It is being in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. You see, for heaven to be a place with no sin, heaven must be a place where everyone ultimately treasures God. Otherwise, all you have is brokenness. Moses is right. We are created for the glory of God. The glory of God is the only thing that will fill the hole inside of you. God created us to enjoy his glory. You ever ask yourself, why are you here? Like, like why did God make you? Why, why, why are you you? Why do you have your personality? Why do you have your body? Why, do you have, why, why are you you? The answer, the scriptural answer to that is to enjoy his glory. God wants you to see who he is and to delight in him and to praise his glory and to reflect his glory and to share. Here's the best part. To share in it. That, that's why we exist. Folks, the world is broken. There's sin and suffering and misery and disaster and evil in the world. Do you know why? Because people don't treasure God. Like, that's at the heart of it. Pe- people don't want him. They, they don't treasure him. They don't value him. Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They don't want God. When, when you think about heaven, 
Heaven is glorious because of the presence of God. And listen, whenever people say, I don't want God, I'm not interested in God, I know I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here with heaven. Essentially what they're saying is I don't want heaven, all right? Now, I know you're probably gonna say, well, I don't know anybody who recently has said, I don't, I don't want God. Well, just let, let me appeal to you. It, we were talking about this this week, some, some guys and I. Like, like if you're a person that you have no interest in his word, like no interest, like you got five Bibles and six commentaries at home that somebody bought you and you don't ever crack any of them. Why? I mean, just at the heart of heart of it, we could all say busy, we could all say that, but at the heart of it, you're just not interested. Okay, if you're not interested in God, honestly, you're not interested in heaven. But for Moses, the presence of God had a high value. I was reading a commentary by Matthew Henry, and he said this. He said, those who know how to value God's favors are best prepared to receive them. Okay, Moses is a great example of that. Moses is a guy who, who he knows how to treasure God. He knows how to value God. He knows how to say, man, I know what the most important thing is. I know what's gonna satisfy my soul. It's God. And because of that, God, God gives him himself, all right? I mean, that's kind of a basic principle. Like you and I, we, we, don't, we don't entrust things to people that they don't value. When you guys are looking for someone to babysit your kids, who do you look for? Do you find the crotchety old person that hates kids, you know, and like, hey, let's, let's, let's call him, you know? Let's see if he'll, let's just drop him by. I'm sure it'll be fine, you know? No, you don't do that, right? You, like, if they don't value kids, they don't like kids, you, you don't entrust kids to them. If somebody can't handle money, like, they're a disaster with money. Like, they make terrible money decisions. They're, they're, they're an immediate gratification person. You, you don't turn your 401k to them, Right? in the same way. This may explain a lot about some folks. If you simply don't value God, God's not gonna entrust his things to you. He's not gonna entrust himself to you. But not Moses. Man, look at this guy. So if you remember, if you are here last week, you remember that preceding this, Moses was on the mountain with God, right? He goes up and the cloud comes down and, and God speaks with him. Actually, verse 11, we skipped it, but verse 11 says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I don't think face-to-face in the sense that Moses is seeing God's face because God later, just a few verses later, says no one can do that or they will die. But I think he's saying he talked to him as if face-to-face. In other words, like we're talking now. Like a lot of times we think about God speaking to us, we think about him speaking to us through his word and through a voice inside of us or through the Holy Spirit's, you know, moving through other people, right? There's lots of ways that God speaks to us, but God spoke to Moses in a conversational way. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is in the presence of God. God's speaking to them in this conversation. And at the end of that, Moses is like, I want more. I want more. I won't go to the promised land without you, God. Man, 40 days and 40 nights with some people, you just won't be wanting a break, wouldn't you? But not with God. Like, like God's glory is addictive. It's intoxicating. It's without boundaries. And so when God says, hey, I'm not going, I'm gonna send an angel, I'm gonna take care of you, I'm gonna keep my word, I'm gonna fulfill my promises, but I'm not gonna go. Moses is like, no. The people, they mourned. Did you see that in verse four? When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. It was a sign of penitence, a sign of repentance. There was this public display. We are tore up. We are broke, man. We are are crushed. We're depressed. Why? 
because God's presence is not with us. Man, if there's anything to be sad about, if there's anything to be tore up about, it's that. Like, that's what you ought to be sad about. When your sin has broken your fellowship with God, you ought to be tore up about that. That's when you ought to rock around moping and crying out to God to get that back. Okay, so God says, I'm not going. All right, what did we see last week? Here comes Moses, the intercessor, all right? Last week, if you are here, beautiful picture of Jesus, right? Moses comes down from the, the mountain. There they are with their golden calf, dancing around it, partying it up, rejoicing over this piece of gold. Moses throws down the commandments, comes in. What's he do? He intercedes, okay? He stops the sin. He punishes the sin, but he intercedes. He comes to God and he says, God, for your glory, for your namesake, God, because of your promises, please don't consume the people. What's God do? God relents because of Moses. Same with today. God says, I'm not going with you guys. And Moses begins to intercede. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 is a beautiful loop, by the way. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight. So Moses is talking. God's told him, Moses, you found favor in my sight. So God says, if I found, or Moses says, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Okay, do you see that loop? Like, like I favor with the Lord. Like he's pleased with me for us because of Jesus. So God, show me your ways that I might know you, that I might know you more, that I might have favor in your sight that you might show me your ways, that I might know you, that I might have favor in your sight. Now, I think this is a circle that we see in the New Testament. One of the places I think we see it in Philippians 3.10, where, where Paul says, man, I, I wanna know you, Philippians 3.10. I wanna know you in the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, being conformed to your death. And then he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, pressing forward to what's ahead. I think Paul is doing a loop there. He's saying, God, I, I know you, and so I want to know you more. I think 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a, a similar one. We'll look at that next week. Okay, so, so Moses comes to God, and he appeals, God, show me your ways, that I might know you. And then he begins to intercede. Look at verse 13 at the end. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Okay, so what you have here is someone who has favor with God, interceding for those who do not have favor with God. Okay, now where, where do we see that, right? Jesus, again, Moses is the prophet. Moses said this at the end of Deuteronomy. He said, there's gonna, there's gonna arise a prophet like me. That was Jesus. Moses is a picture of Jesus, all right? So, so what's he doing? Moses has favor with God, so he is interceding on behalf of Israel. And in the same way, Jesus, who has favor with God, is interceding on your behalf, okay? You, you, God will go with you. God, God would go with Moses, okay? So, so the next verse uh, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 14, uh, God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, all right? So because Moses had favor with God, he was able to intercede for Israel and God said, okay, I'll go with you, all right? In the same way, because Jesus has favor with God, he's able to intercede for you. And God is pleased with us because of Jesus, all right? But now let's move to the thing that I really wanna focus on today and that is the name of God. And, and so let's put this in context. I, I think what Moses is praying here in verse 18, please show me your glory. I think he's praying that, appealing for God to save rebellious, stiff-necked Israel, 
okay? So in other words, I don't think this is like, like they've settled it all. Like, like he's like, okay, God's going with us now. Uh, whew, got that past us. He's like, hey, by the way, God, I'd like to see your glory. I've always been interested in seeing that. You know, I'd like to see more of your glory. I don't think it's that at all. I think Moses is still interceding. I think he's still, he's still pleading with God. And I think he's saying basically, show us your glory in the context of saving rebellious Israel, right? In, in other words, Moses is saying, man, God, I know these are a stiff-necked people. I know you left them alone for 40 days and they built a golden calf and they're worshiping again. I, I know that, that they're rebellious, they're idolatrous, but God, would you just flex your muscles of mercy? Would you just... Start up your rocket engine of grace, and would you save this rebellious people? Show us your glory. I think that's the way he's praying this. Show me your glory. And so what does God do? God says, I will. And he says, I will proclaim before you, this is in verse 19, I will proclaim before you my name. All right? So, so God's glory and God's name are connected. So in other words, whenever you find the Bible revealing the name of God, he's revealing his glory. He's revealing his magnificence, all right? And, and so what's his name in verse 19? The Lord, that's Yahweh, okay? Remember back in Exodus 3, I am who I am? Okay, that's, that's that word right there, all right? In other words, God's self-existence, he is who he is, okay? Nobody brought him into being, nobody sustains him. God is a self-existing power plant forevermore, eternity past, eternity future. So he says, the Lord, and then he says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now notice in the, in the heart of the divine name here is this reality that God is not obligated to show mercy or grace to anyone, okay? God is not a debtor to anyone. That's not the way God works. God, God doesn't work in a way where you like prove yourself and then God pays you back or you do something for God and God's like, wow, that was really nice. Let me do something for you, okay? This is not a situation where you buy God's meal at McDonald's and then he buys yours at Wilson's, okay? That's the way I function, but, but that's not the way God functions, all right? This is not, God doesn't pay people back. God doesn't owe anybody, anyone, anything. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, meaning that in God's character, it is in him to pour his grace and mercy to the undeserving, completely exercising his sovereign will. Now, if you really get what God is saying here, it's shocking and you won't like it, okay? So if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're out here this morning and you're like, that's good, that's good. I don't think, you, I don't think it's hit yet, okay? Because we... As people, this unnerves us. It unsettles us. Okay, it's shocking to us because we by nature operate under this principle that we're in control. And so, oh, I messed up. I need to, I need to fix it. I need to, I need to get, like we operate on this principle that, you know, God owes me a good life because I've been a good person or, oh no, I've been a bad person and so now I got bad things. I need to work that off. And God just blows that out of the water. He says, no, no, no. God gives grace and mercy to whomever he wills. Like in his own sovereign ruling decision, he does it. All right, are you starting to be unsettled? Not yet, huh? You still liking this? Okay, all right. All right. 
You made me do it. Just remember, okay, where is this verse quoted in the New Testament? It is quoted in the most disliked chapter in all the Bible, Romans 9. Most people, when they read Romans, they read Romans 6, 7, 8, 10, right? Like some folks have just like even tore it out because it is super unsettling. We don't like it at all. All right, but listen to how Paul uses this, all right? So I'm, I'm gonna, I, we may just have verse 15 actually on the, on the screen, but I'm gonna, I wanna read a little bit more than that, okay? So I'm gonna start in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So, so Paul is answering this question that if, if God does what he wants, uh, you know, is, is that unjust, okay? And, and here's Paul's answer to that. He goes back to Exodus 33 and 34, and he says, for he says to Moses, this is Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, and all of us are like, ah! Right? Like, we're like, that's bad! You know why we think that's bad? We're not in control, and that is terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying. Like, there's this punch in the gut, we're like, man, I'm not in control, Okay, let me, let me soften that a bit. Let me, try to, let me try to heal your wound a bit, okay? Whatever, whatever, whatever feeling you had you, that you were in control is an absolute illusion, okay? That, that was made up in your own mind, all right? And, and, and let, let, me, let me tell you where I'm really at on this. I, I, I wrestled with this. This just knocked me to my knees for years after I became a Christian until finally, until finally, like the, 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 the thing that just came in and carried me away was this. I came to really believe I would rather God be in control than me. It is better that he is in control than I'm in control. Here's what I came to really realize. Jason Dirks messes stuff up. Like I mess my marriage up. I mess my family up. I mess my kids up. I mean, I, I mess it up. I would rather God be in control Look at what he says. I will let all my goodness pass before you. Man, I've got, I've got a teaspoon of goodness in me. Actually, that's not true. Romans 3 says I got nothing, okay? But I was trying to give myself a little, a little something, okay? God has an ocean of goodness in him. And he says, and I give it to whomever I will. And if you're Israel, oh, that's good news. Why is that good news? because they are a stiff-necked, rebellious people bent on sin and idolatry. And they would have already been consumed had not Moses interceded. And then as they're looking forward to a lifetime in the promised land, oh man, they're not gonna make it. Unless, unless God is this mountain of mercy and grace that he gives it will. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. He just gives it. That's the only hope. Let's go to chapter 34. So chapter 34, here's the plan. Moses, I'm gonna put you on the cleft of the rock. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass by, I'm gonna hide you in there. 
I'm gonna put my hand over you. Once I get by, you can see my, my back, and I will, again, God's gonna proclaim his name. Now, listen to it this time. Ready? This is verse 30, chapter 34, verse six. The Lord passed by, and the Lord passed before him, and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember, I am who I am. I am who I am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Praise God. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. There it was. We just sang it. For thousands, generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's pick through those real quickly. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Man, aren't you glad that right under the surface of God is not this anger that's ready to come bubbling out? How often is that true for us, huh? How often do you come home and, man, you're a powder keg. I mean, the, the fuse is lit, and you're just waiting for little Johnny to spill a Cheerio on the new floor, and you're coming down, right? Wrath is just coming out. I, I was looking at the, the definition of nitroglycerin in the, in the, in the encyclopedia. Here, here it is. Ready? Not the encyclopedia. No, nobody has those. Google. Okay. Um, nitroglycerin is an oily, colorless liquid, highly explosive, that is so unstable that the slightest jolt, impact, or friction can cause it to spontaneously detonate. That very accurately describes a lot of people, okay? Like, like they're, they're, just, they're just full of this anger and disappointment and frustration and, and annoyance, and at the, at the slightest jolt or, or friction, boom, it comes out. I mean, God is the very opposite of that. Man, he's the opposite of that. He is slow to anger, slow to wrath. What's, what's right underneath the service of God? It is grace and mercy. He's full of it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. He gives it freely by his own sovereign will. Look at this abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding. He's just, he, it's, the, it's the Hoover Dam of, of steadfast love. That, that's a covenantal word. Steadfast love is the Hebrew chesed. If you have the ESV, anytime you, you see steadfast love in the Old Testament, it's that word. It's God's loyal love. It's this covenantal, enduring, steadfast love that meets your need. And there's this Hoover Dam full of that. And, and when God turns the crank, it just comes out and, and, and Billions of gallons, no limits. Man, notice this, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I, I don't know how your Bible translates that. The ESV just says thousands, which is very literal. I looked it up in the Hebrew, but I, I really think what, what was intended there was thousands of generations, okay? The reason I believe that is because uh, Hebrew is very parallelistic, okay? And so I can't prove this to you, but, but the next part is, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so a lot of people think, Thousands should have generation implied with it, and I agree with that. And what's he saying? 
He's saying the impact of the love of God, the impact of the grace of God, the impact of the steadfast faithfulness of God can go. It has limitless potential to forgive iniquity to the thousandth generation of your family. Think about that. A thousand generations of a family could be impacted by the love of God. You're saying, is that really true? Abraham, right? Like it is. Man. But, but God's not soft on sin, okay? He will punish the guilty. The impact of sin, man, this is a sobering thought for us. The impact of sin could pass to the third and fourth generation. His mercy to thousands of generations. The impact of sin to the third and fourth. So God will show his glory in saving the sinner. God will show his glory in punishing the sinner. How's he gonna do that? He's gonna do that through Jesus, right? God shows his glory through saving the sinner through Jesus. God shows his glory through punishing the sinner through Jesus. Both those things are done in Jesus. All right, quickly, what is, what is Moses' response? Verse eight, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. There's not been a lot of application in this sermon, so let's talk a bit. What should our response be to this? This, this reality that this is who God is, that, that when he speaks his name, he says, I, I, I am gracious to whom I am gracious. I'm merciful to whom I'm merciful. I abound in steadfast love. What, what should be our response to that? It should be worship. Tim Keller gave this great illustration about looking on this vast vista, this horizon. And, and I started thinking about what he was saying and I started picturing in my mind. I, I pictured myself, I, I remember when I sat on the rim of the Grand Canyon, him and I were there visiting one time and, and I got up early and I had my Bible and my notebook and I just sat on this rock kind of away from everybody just looking out upon the expanse that the sun came up. I remember the first time that we were in Oregon and, and we were driving toward the coast and we, we broke through the trees and the Pacific Ocean stretched out. It seemed like for a thousand miles um, through on the top of this cliff. And, and I remember hiking up, up uh, a peak on the opposite of Mount Rainier and getting to the top of it and just seeing the full spread of Mount Rainier. And you know what I did in all those situations? Let me just tell you what I did. I just sat there and looked engaged. Go ahead and ask me some questions. Well, well Pastor, what, what were you trying to do? Ah, nothing. What were we trying to accomplish? Honestly, nothing. How long would you have stayed until my family got hungry? Like, that's the only reason I left. You know, you know, what, you know what was happening in that moment? I was just enjoying I was just savoring. I was just being satisfied. Okay, follow me. Please don't, don't check out. I want that with God. Mount Rainier is like this little postcard with an arrow pointing to the glory of God. The Pacific Ocean, it's just this advertisement. It's just this commercial for the glory of God. That's all it is. It's, it's supposed to redirect your mind to see the vastness of God. And, and would you just for a minute just entertain the possibility 
that you can know God in such a way that you just bask in his glory, that your, your soul is satisfied to the, to the infinite degree that, that you have capacity for by him, by his character. Does that excite you? Man, that excites me. I, I want to see him. This is why Moses was like, I'm not going to the promised land. If you're not going, milk and honey gets, it gets old. Grapes get old. Houses break down. I, God, I want you. Why? Because Moses knew that. Application question. How do we seek the glory of God? How do we see it? How do we, how do we bask in it? How do we do that? Real quick, I, I do think in nature, this, this is, would be the lowest on the totem pole, and, and it's very easily missed. I remember, I remember talking to a, a, a park ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park. I was trying to like have a gospel conversation with him, and so I said, well, tell me why you love working in Rocky Mountain National Park, and he said, it's my religion. He said, I, 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 this, to me, this is God. And so I'm, I'm communing. And I was like, dude, you missed it, you know? Like, no, this is, this is pointing. This is pointing to God. It's crying out for you to look at the glorious, infinite God. Psalm 19 says this. The heavens declare, they, they, they aren't God. They declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it pours out speech. Night to night, reveals knowledge. There's no speech. There's no words. There are, nor are there words whose voice is heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. So, yes, in nature, but much more in, in this, in this. Seek to see the glory of God in his word. Man, I, I can take you to the spot on the, at the Lincoln campus where it, we used to have, it's over by the education building, we used to have an old brown bus there, okay? And a lot of you old timers might remember the old brown bus. The old brown bus was 100% consistent, okay? We never took it anywhere that it did not break down. Like, like I'm not kidding. It had a flawless record. We, we broke down every year to Falls Creek. We had to have someone come get us. I don't know why we kept thinking it would work because it never worked, all right? And I was walking by that brown bus early in the morning one morning, and I had my Bible in my hand. I was reading through the Psalms. I was walking in the parking lot, and I came to Psalm 1611, and it says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, and I'm telling you, it was like a rocket. It was like a sledgehammer. I mean, it hit me with such force that I've never been the same from that moment on. But I want that. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. It was like this shift where before, I knew that I wanted God, but, you know, I also felt like, well, there's happiness and all this other stuff, and all of a sudden, all this stuff was cheap. You have to, God, I want you. We see it in the person of Jesus. Oh, listen to John. Listen to John 1.14. Are you ready? And the word Jesus became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 16. For for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus is incarnate God. He is glory incarnate in a person. We know God by knowing Jesus. We see his glory in the gospel, in this beautiful reality that if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a believer, you didn't earn that. You you didn't deserve it. You didn't do works. And God's like, okay, I'm going to pay you back. No, he's gracious to whom he's gracious. It doesn't work that way. Here's the gospel. God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life on your behalf. And then then he died. He tortured his death on the cross in order to pay the penalty for your sin. Then he rose from the dead and he reigns at the right hand of God and he offers salvation to whoever would repent of their sin, put their faith in him. You can be joined to Jesus, his righteousness in your account, your sin on him. There's glory in the work of the Holy Spirit. Man, have you ever just been enraptured with with watching a transformed life right in front of you? Oh, that's exciting. That is so exciting when you see God move in your your, your loved one, your family, your child, your neighbor, somebody you just met. And you you see this radical obedience. You see this display of radical love. Man, I have seen, I've seen people who are at odds with one another for generations get up and move across the room and reconcile because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's glorious. We see the glory of God often when we're on mission. Man, David, I was thinking about that picture right there, and my mind, a wrist. Somewhere on the other side of the world. Darkness, under the cover of darkness for security. We're worshiping. That orphan girl lost her family. Man, I wasn't singing. I was watching her just basking in the glory of God. In worship, man, I'm telling you, a few weeks ago, we were singing a beautiful name right here in this room. I was sitting right there. I, the only way I, I tried to explain it to people, and here's what I said. I said, you know, in Jurassic Park, when, when they have the glass of water and it starts going boom, boom, you know, like you know something's coming and it's unsettling. And I felt that in this room. I don't know if you did. It's been several weeks ago. Oh, man. Glory. Sorry, we're out of time, but real quick. Moses sought glory in God, okay? What are you seeking it in? Are you you seeking it in self and achievement and money and personal power and people making much of you? You seeking it in a sports team? If you're an OSU fan, you, you realize this morning, glory in a bunch of 19 year olds playing with the ball is fleeting. What are you seeking it in? Man, don't be satisfied with cheap stuff. Moses sought glory in God. Moses asked for it. Pray this way. Make make Exodus 33, 19 your prayer. God, show us your glory. Show us. Show me. 
Moses wouldn't be content without it, right? God, I'm not going in the I'm not going in there without you. And you and I should have that heart. So many times I, I, I think our heart is inclined toward God and I think we start moving toward God and I think the devil pulls out a box of Twinkies, hands us a couple and we're like, okay, that's good. I'm satisfied. And we stop. Moses turned from sin. You'll notice, man, sin Sin was keeping these folks from the presence of God. You, you gotta repent. You gotta take off your ornaments. In other words, man, put yourself in a posture of miserableness until you get the sin out of your life. Don't be stiff-necked. Look at verse eight and nine, and we're done. Chapter 34, verse eight and nine. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in amidst in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. That, that's our prayer as we close. God, come in among us. Come in among us. Father, we ask you to come in among us. God, we ask you to forgive our iniquity. God, we ask you to take us for your inheritance. Father, we, we ask you to, God, show us your glory. God, thrill our souls with you with your grace and with your mercy and with your steadfast love and with your kindness. God, stir our hearts with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our intercessor. God, make those things, capture our heart with them. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.